My text is from uh, Romans chapter 4. And beginning at verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, for if it is the inheritance of the law to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Many, many years ago when my wife and I were very, very young, and we were young once, we have photos to prove it, and they're not photoshopped. Um, in fact, we just celebrated our 51st anniversary yesterday, a little over, and she did all the work. Uh, a little over uh, 51 years ago, I, uh, I went to Don Martin School of Radio and Television, and Got, uh, got my, uh, my, my first class engineer's license and they told us, they said, when you go to look for work, don't just send out resumes and wait for answers to come back, but you need to be there. So I got in my car in Los Angeles and I drove across country stopping at radio stations until I finally got to Coatesville, Pennsylvania. And there was a young lady behind the desk who gave me my application and um, Little did I know that there were two applications in there, one for a job as a radio announcer and the other for a husband. <laughs> and so uh, she is far more than I, I deserve, and I mean that sincerely. But back to when we were young. When we were young, there was a, a day when I got a phone call from a, a little baby boy, and he said he had been looking at our profile, and he was looking for parents and wanted to know if we would be willing to be his parents. And I said, well, we would consider it. I said we would begin the adoption process, uh, but on the condition that he fulfill certain obligations. 
Uh, when he got to be five or six years old, seven years old, he would make breakfast for us and bring us breakfast in bed two days a week. And he would make sure he took out the trash when it got so high, and he would keep his room clean. But we also had a hidden list that he wasn't allowed to see, so he had to be as good as he could possibly be to make sure that he covered everything on that list. And that if he did that, then at some point, we would finalize the adoption so that he could inherit our vast estate. Well, four years later, we got a call from a little baby girl, and she also asked us the same thing. And I told her the same thing. Keep your room clean, and you can bring us breakfast two days a week when you get old enough to make us breakfast. So there's four days that we had covered. And uh, then uh, we had this hidden list. And you need to be as good as you can possibly be to make sure that you cover everything on that list. If you don't, then we won't finalize the adoption. Now, I tell you that silly little fable because that's how many Christians operate in their relationship with God. Because, of course, once we adopted our children, they were our children, uh, for, good, for better or for worse. And thank God we got the for better most of the time. But uh, many Christians look at their relationship with God that way. The Spirit of God has given them new birth. Uh, God has adopted them into his family, yet they're not quite sure that they're really in. There's always something left undone, something that they have to do in addition to God's efforts to save them. They have to add their efforts to God's to make sure that things are complete. I don't know if you struggle with that idea. Maybe you're not even aware that you're thinking that way, because I do think that we are by nature legalists. There's an underlying guilt that may drive you to feel like you're falling short and you always have something that needs to be done. God isn't quite happy with you, but he would be if you would just do better. I want to impress upon you this morning that you do fall short and you can't do more any more than my children can do anything to make themselves the children of their parents. First of all, you don't need to do more because your salvation from beginning to end is in God's hands and is God's doing. You have everything working against you. I want you to think about this. You have everything working against you except God. Everything is working against your salvation. God is all that you have going for you. Satan is against you. Your carnal heart was against you. The world and its culture is against you. Your sins were against you. And even now, your sinful flesh as a Christian is against you. And whatever you do and whatever you have going for you whether it be the Bible, whether it be Christians who may be praying for you or discipling you, it may be the church and her sacraments, they all come from God. If you look at Romans 8, Romans 8, verse 31, the Apostle Paul says, What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is saying, everything is against you, and all you have going for you is God. I had a grandmother who prayed for my salvation, but it was God's grace that gave me that grandmother. And throughout church history, the church has always had to fight tooth and nail to preserve the biblical teaching of salvation by grace through faith, leaving our works out of it. In Paul's day, the issue was how the Gentiles, those not Jewish, could be right with God. Jews who trust in Christ for their salvation were already circumcised, but the problem was that those Jews tended to put their trust in that circumcision rather than in the grace of God. And they foisted that same false idea onto Gentile converts who were coming into the church. The Jews who said the Gentiles must be circumcised said that, said that because they themselves thought was this, this was how they were justified. They didn't deny Christ and his work on the cross. You can put your faith in Christ, but that's only half the equation. And if you don't get the other half, you're condemned. The other half is circumcision. So it's Christ plus, not just Christ, he by himself is not sufficient. You have to add something. And this cuts through the very heart of the gospel. It's so serious that Paul had very scathing words to say to the Galatians for accepting this idea that our works, to any degree, are partially responsible for our salvation. Paul here sets the record straight, as straight as he can set it. He goes back to the source where it all began. He goes back to Abraham the father of our faith. And he starts off in verse 13 by referring to what he calls the promise. God made a promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would make him the father of many nations, as many as the dust of the earth and the stars in the sky. How would that promise be obtained? That's the key question. Abraham and Sarah were well beyond childbearing years, so would God need help? Would the fulfillment of that promise come from Abraham and what he did, or would it come from God? Or would it be a combination of both? And I want to say that from Abraham's side of things, I think the key word is in verse 19, 
the word considered. Abraham and Sarah had to consider their way out of a false way of thinking, what we call synergism, where the completion of God's promises requires a combination of our working with God, that God, as it were, needs us to help him complete his work of salvation. From God's side, it's the promise. From God's side, it's monergism. That is, it all depends on God. It's not synergism, a combination of the both, but it's monergism. It's all God. God called Abraham out of paganism. Abraham wasn't searching for God. God went after Abraham, and God knew exactly how he was going to fulfill that promise. And what was Abraham's part? His part was to consider. That's used twice. He did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. A living faith, like the faith of Abraham, is a considering faith. It's a faith that thinks, and it's a faith that wonders. Sometimes it gets it right. Sometimes it gets it wrong, goes down this dead-end path and that dead-end path, and sometimes falls down and has to get up. That was the whole experience of Abraham and Sarah. I want to ask you this morning if you have that kind of a faith. James says that faith without works is dead. And when we think of works, we think of doing things, good works. We think of obedience. And he gives Abraham as an example. Abraham's faith led him to leave his home country and go to a God-forsaken country and make that his new home. He was a babe in that faith, and he had to grow. And what did he have to grow in? He had to grow in his understanding. Undergirding his growing faith was understanding. He and Sarah couldn't figure out how he was going to fulfill the promise. They used the process of trial and error. And so when James gives Abraham as an example of a living faith that expressed itself in good works, he didn't come that way right out of the box. It was also a faith that struggled to understand how God was going to do what he promised. You have them stumbling along, sometimes lying, sometimes making wrong choices, sometimes laughing about the whole thing, all because they were trying to figure out not whether or not was God was going to fulfill his promise, but how. And that's a living faith. His understanding became so great eventually when he matured that he was willing to give that son of promise, Isaac, as a sacrifice on the altar. But that's not the way he started out. He had a better standing, an understanding of God's ways by that time. By that time, he knew God could do the impossible. The word consider in the Greek means to learn thoroughly or, consist, or uh, consider accurately. To learn thoroughly or consider accurately. That's the job description of every Christian. That's my question for you this morning. Do you have a thoughtful faith? Do you wrestle with the things of Scripture? Do you wrestle with the promises of God that seem to defy your lived reality? 
Do you ponder God's word in conjunction with your life, your future, and the church? Are you a ponderer, a wonderer, a meditator, a considerer? Do you even take time to do any considering? Throughout scripture, we're told to be a considering people. Deuteronomy 4.39, know therefore this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath. There is none else. In other words, consider it in your heart. Think about that. Take it to heart. Ponder it. Deuteronomy 32.7, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. In other words, ponder the lives of the saints that have gone before you and take inspiration from them. Psalm 8, 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him. And then he goes on to make all of these connections of man's rule over the creation and then wonder, Lord, you're so great and we are so puny. Why did you do this? Why do you bother with us? Why have you given us so much authority? In Isaiah 1.3, God chastens his people for not being a considering people, a people who ponder and people who make connections. The ox knows his owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. In Haggai, Israel was living in nice houses while the temple of God was lying in ruins. They were using the best materials for their houses and neglecting the temple of God. And then they were wondering why it was that they were working so hard and they weren't getting any, any returns on their labors. And in verse 4, God says, consider your ways. Literally, set your heart on your ways. Think about what you're doing and the consequences. Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Think about all the ways you can do that. Don't just run on automatic pilot. Give it some thought. And finally, Hebrews 12, 3. Consider him, Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And what's the result of that considering? So that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. Considering has consequences. Lack of considering also has consequences. Lack of considering leaves you in the dark. It leaves you with ignorance. It leaves you with wrong thinking and therefore wrong behavior. Evidence that Abraham had a living faith, it was a considering faith, a pondering faith, a probing faith, and that was the big difference between him and the Jews in Rome. Theirs wasn't a living faith that considered anything, or they wouldn't have, ha have added to the work of Christ. In 2 Timothy 2.7, Paul is warning him about quarrelsome people and how to deal with them, and you know, He's telling them that quarrelsome people can really destabilize a church, can leave, leave individuals with a very unstable faith if they're quarrelsome people that want to bicker about everything, bicker about words. 
Recently on Twitter, I happened to see, as many of you may know, John MacArthur has been very ill, and he went to recuperate for a while, took time away from the pulpit, and after he's rested up, he posted something on Twitter, a picture of him and his wife as they had been on vacation and relaxing, announcing that he was coming back to the pulpit. And I thought, you know, because I see nasty things on Twitter, nasty, people can be so nasty to each other, so ugly. And I thought, I wonder what this thread of responses is like. And I started going down through the th thread and I, my heart was so pleased to see so many people thanking him for his faithful preaching in the pulpit, thanking him for all those years and how they had learned so much from him and so on. But you know, there had to be one. There's always one. And this one person said some of the most vicious things to him. And I thought, why does there always have to be one? And that's what the Apostle Paul was telling Timothy about as a young pastor. He was telling them how to handle quarrelsome people. And then Paul says in verse 7 of 2 Timothy 2, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. How does the Lord give you understanding? By thinking on these things, by considering, by pondering. You know, as I've told many of you, over the years, I was uh, saved under the charismatic movement, uh, name it and claim it, health and wealth and so on. And I used to go to church every Sunday and I'd see people in wheelchairs and people that had other disabilities and they would be preaching about how it's God's will to heal everybody if you just have enough faith. And I'd see those same people coming and going, coming and going in their wheelchairs and, in, and with their disabilities. And I did a lot of considering I did a lot of thinking about that, trying to square that with the scriptures and wondering, why aren't these people being healed? Well, they don't have enough faith. It's always they don't have, and I was just, then I'm pondering, well, why, how do they get enough faith? Recently, I watched some old videos of a preacher named Jesse Duplantis. And you know these people like Joel Osteen, Jesse Duplantis, they get thousands of people out there. And I like to look at the audience, and I think how I see how they're absorbing all of this. And Jesse Duplantis told of a time when Jesus, I think three times, took him on a tour of heaven and was just telling him all about his experiences in heaven and asking Jesse Duplantis to pray for him. And he said one day he came into his office, and he sat down, and there was Jesus sitting there in the chair like he does every morning, and the camera's panning the audience, and they're all just taking it in, except the cameraman focused on one young lady was looking, and it's like, you've got to be kidding. That look on her face could tell, you could tell that she really had doubts. And Jesus was telling Jesse Duplantis how discouraged he gets. And after some counseling that he gave to Jesus, Jesus stood up. And he said, Jesus had a smile on his face. And he said, Jesse, can I have a hug? And Jesse said, sure, Jesus. And he gave him a hug. And he says, the Jesus that was sitting in that chair was different when he went out. Now, I ask you today, I ask you today, do you see anywhere in the Gospels that Jesus ever, ever became discouraged? When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the worst time of his whole ministry, 
Did he come out and ask Peter, James, and John, hey guys, get up, I need a hug. I need some encouragement. Could you give me a pep talk? You see, when people, when people sit there and listen to this nonsense, you can tell it's a church that doesn't do any considering, any pondering, any meditating, like the church at Berea, when they had none less than the Apostle Paul teaching them, but they searched the scriptures to see if these things are so. In ancient times, a person's wealth wasn't measured just in terms of the amount of land and livestock they had, but also in terms of the children they had to pass that land and that livestock down to and to provide for that couple in old age, as well as to carry on the family name and lineage. And that's why God told Abram that he would give the land of Canaan to you and your offspring. In terms of children, Abram was bankrupt because he had no children. And when he died, everything died with him. Children were your key to immortality. And they were your retirement plan, your 401k, your pension. So recalling God promised to give him hordes of children, Abraham brings that promise up to God. It's good to remind God of his promises. Not that he forgets, but he wants you not to forget. What good is any material wealth you may give me God, I mean, Abraham says to God, in essence, if I don't have children, to leave it to and carry on the family lineage. You promised me children. How about my servant, Eliezer? Is that who you mean? No, says the Lord. Your children will come from your loins and from Sarah's womb. People did that back then. If they had no heirs, they would adopt a household servant as their heir. But God wasn't going to use human customs to deliver on his promise. Then in chapter 16, Sarah's wife says, Okay, if it's not Eliezer, it would have to be a child born to your concubine. Hagar, have a child with her. That way the child will still be yours, even though not from me, and God will have fulfilled his promise. In other words, there's nothing supernatural happening here. And so we'll have to go with the natural. God will do things in half measures. He'll do his half, you do yours. That same thinking of those in Rome who said, it's Christ's work plus your work. He died on the cross and you get circumcised and you're good to go. And so Hagar gives birth to Ishmael only to find out that's not what God meant. And by this time, Abram's 86 years old when Ishmael is born. Pretty good miracle. That must be what, what the Lord means. No. And then in chapter 17, when Abram is 99 years old, God changes his name to Abraham to indicate his promise of making him the father of many nations. In chapter 17, he tells Abraham to circumcise his household as a sign of belonging to the people of God's promise because he's about to do his miracle. He's going to keep his promise. And here's the next step. He goes, gets even more specific by saying, I'm also going to change Sarai's name to be Sarah, princess. And the child that I give you isn't going to be the child of your household servant. It's not going to be the child of your concubine. The child is going to come out of the deadness and the barrenness of your body and Sarah's womb. And that's what's meant in 17, that Abraham believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Sarah's womb was as good as not existing. 
It was the same as the creation in the beginning that didn't exist until God called it into existence. And the point I'm making is this. The Christian walk is a considering walk, a pondering walk, sometimes a wrestling walk regarding God and his promises, which results in it being a growing walk. And that's how you grow in your walk with God. That's how you grow in your understanding of God. Verses 19 and 22, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, and that's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That faith that Abraham had in God as the only one who could fulfill his promise did not come full grown. It developed, and it developed by that process of the considering, the pondering, the deadness, and the barrenness of his and Sarah's bodies and the greatness of God. But God helped him in that, con in that considering, in that pondering. And let's see how. Remember at first, God pointed Abraham to the ground and said, to, said his children would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. Dust of the earth. That was a prover proverbial saying, and, and it was a way of saying a lot of something. But dust in the Bible is also symbolic of weakness and impotence as well as death. God made man from the dust of the ground, and that should humble us when we are tempted to think that we are little gods. God pronounced his curse on man by saying, from dust you came, and to dust you shall return. 1 Samuel 2.8 says that God raises the poor out of the dust. Psalm 103.9 says that God has compassion on us because we are so powerless over our sins by saying that he remembers we are but dust. But consider this, God later pointed Abraham to the stars and he said his offspring would be as numerous as the stars. Now if God only wanted to make the point to Abraham that he was gonna have a lot of children, he could have stopped with the dust. He's getting Abraham to consider, to ponder his own helplessness and the transcendence of God's power to raise him and his descendants out of the dust and to elevate them to the stars. Think, for instance, of Daniel chapter 12. It says, at that time, verse 1, shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. We came from the dust, but we are meant to shine like the stars. And it's God and God alone who can transform us from one to the other. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless a man be born from where? From the dust? No, from above. He cannot see the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, dust. That which is born of the spirit from heaven is spirit. And Revelation 22, 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The bright morning star is the star that signals a new day is coming. Jesus, as the bright morning star, is signaling that a new age is here and is coming, the new creation, where tears and sorrows and death will all be wiped away. As fully man from the dust and fully God from the heavens, Jesus is our connection between the dust of the earth and the stars of the heavens. And some of you remember the motto from the presidential election in the early 1990s. The candidates are arguing back and forth about what the main issue is. And one of Bill Clinton's political strategists named James Carvel said, it's the economy, stupid. Well, teachers in the church at Rome were arguing that circumcision was the key to being right with God that God did his part on the cross. You do your part in circumcision. You can add church membership, add doing more good works, add being baptized, add reading your Bible more, add praying more. But Paul says, it's the promise, stupid. Nothing we do makes the promise happen. God is the author and the finisher of the promise. The promise is his and his alone to make and to fulfill, and nothing will stop him from fulfilling his promise. Our salvation doesn't depend on what or how much we do or don't do because we are of the dust of the earth. We need what only God can give, and that's the Son of God who lived up to the law of God with perfection, who gave himself as the sacrifice for our sins. And we need the Holy Spirit to invade our hardened hearts and replace those, that, that dry, cracked soil with soil that's rich in the nutrients that make for a harvest for God, and it all comes from above. Abraham's loins, Sarah's womb were as good as dead. They weren't going to make God's promise come about or even help God's promise come about. The only thing they had left was to believe God's promise. In verse 16, Paul says of Abraham in hope, he believed against hope. There are two hopes there. Those two hopes are pitted against one another. The first hope is a hope that comes from faith in God. It's a hope that rises above everything in this creation. And for that reason, it's a hope that can't be disappointed. It's a hope that comes from the stars or from the heavens. The second hope comes from the dust of the earth, trusting in this world, all of which comes and goes, is built up and torn down. Your health, which can fail in the blink of an eye, your relationships that can be lost because friends desert you or they pass away, your wealth that can leave you empty or be lost, your job or career, your government that can turn against you or be overtaken and overthrown, your looks that once opened doors for you but is overtaken by weight gain and wrinkles? Are you old enough to look at old photographs of yourself and be shocked? That's indicative of the second hope, the hope of the dust of the earth in this verse. 
that's what your faith is to cause you to hope against. The second hope in this verse tells you it can't be done. I look in the mirror and I see very clearly that I am a creature of the dust. I'm looking more and more like the dust from which I came. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. The hair is gone. The face is sagging. The wrinkles are forming. And the age spots are appearing. But I'll tell you something in all honesty. I would much rather be the person that I am on the inside that I am today with my knowledge of and fellowship with God and my love for his word and my grasp of his word while appearing on the outside more and more like an ad for a local nursing home than to be the person that I was 50 or 60 years ago with everything outwardly that our culture takes pride in. You may, after being saved, struggle with the reality of your own sins. And I mean, as long as we're facing reality, we all continue to struggle with sin. And I do mean struggle. Note that word struggle. It's vitally important. Remember, Jesus said to strive to enter the narrow gate. Paul said we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. Struggle, wrestle, strive. They're an essential part of living the Christian life, not in order to become a Christian, but in order to live as a Christian after God has made you a member of his kingdom. Like a baby who cries, experiences growing pains, and has to struggle, shows that he or she is alive, yet had nothing to do with their own birth. And if you're passe towards your sin, if you sin with impunity and it doesn't bother you, then you have a real problem. If your sin is your friend rather than your enemy, then again, you have a serious problem. A believer will struggle with his or her sin. A believer will hate his sin. The Holy Spirit will convict you, and you'll live a life of daily repentance. But all of us have sins that we struggle with. They loom over your head like a billboard on a busy street or a banner hanging from one overpass after another as you travel over the highway of life, discouraging you from being confident in your salvation. All of us have more failures in our wrestling than we have successes. But your salvation is not won or lost in how little you sin or how much you sin. Your salvation is in the promise of God fulfilled on your behalf in Christ. Looking at your level of sin as a gauge for whether or not you're saved is like Abraham looking at his own level of sexual virility to see if he has what it takes to have a son. The son that God spoke of was the promised son. Isaac was a child of the promise, and you who are in Christ are children of the promise. He was crucified for your sin. He was raised for your justification. Your faith looks away from yourself and your level of competence as a Christian and looks to Christ. If you dwell on yourself, that's not faith. Faith is Christ-directed. Faith looks upward, not inward. You're a child of the promise, not a child of those who read their Bibles enough or pray enough or do enough good deeds or receive the right mode of baptism or join the church or are mostly free from all the wrong thoughts and the motives and actions that a Christian shouldn't have. All of those things are good and proper for a Christian, but they're not what makes you a Christian. Faith in God's promise 
as delivered in Christ, in spite of your failure to measure up in those areas that what is what makes you a Christian. In hope, he believed against hope. That's you and me. Hoping in Christ against the hopelessness of our sin, our dying and decaying bodies, our fallen world, and yes, the disappointments of our heroes of faith and the imperfections of our churches. As spiritual children of Abraham, we also are hopers against hope. Although we have so much more to go on than Abraham had, we have the crucified and the risen Christ, his word and his promises. I wanna close with this since it's on the minds of so many Christians today. America's falling, she's crumbling, and she's rapidly going down the path of Romans 1. Tyranny is spreading around the world. Persecution of Christians is on the rise. And while America was unique in the history of the world in terms of freedom and prosperity, she was not Israel. She was and is another nation among the nations. She is of the dust. And if Israel, God's chosen people, was infiltrated by false gods and their evil ways, what made us ever think this was not going to happen to America? America is of the dust of the earth. She's not our hope. And I know a lot of Christians are investing a lot of effort in reclaiming America. And I have my doubts, but God can work through that, and it could happen, barring a miracle of God, that could happen. But it won't come through politics. We tried for decades to do it through politics while the culture was running away with evil. It will come only through the preaching of the gospel and the transformation of people's hearts. And it will have to start with the church. The church is in bad shape. In the meantime, one thing you always have to remember, your hope isn't in reclaiming America because you're not first and foremost a child of America. You're a child of God's promise to Abraham, no matter how dark things may get. Don't lose sight of that. Consider that. Let it sink in. Let it enable you to hope against hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope you give us, and it only comes from above. As the psalmist said that he was lying among wild beasts that were tearing at him, with fangs and teeth, but God sent his hope from heaven. And we praise you and thank you that that's our state, O oh Lord. We thank you that you looked upon us in our helpless estate and you sent your son Jesus Christ to die for us. We pray that you'll help us and sanctify our struggles against all the things that we have going against us to always remember that we must keep our hearts set upon you and upon your word and upon your promise. We pray that through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.